You are listening to the AI Ready Healthcare podcast. I'm your host Anirban. I lead a research group in Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany where we translate AI solutions to problems in image guided diagnosis and surgery. The purpose of this podcast is to connect the physician scientists and healthcare professionals with the advanced AI research from the Mikai Society. Here I talk to fellow scientists from both communities about the translational aspects of AI in healthcare. Opinion is whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together, let's make healthcare AI ready. I see skies of blue and clouds of white. The bright blessed day, the dark sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow so pretty in the sky are also on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. I hear babies cry, I watch them grow. They will learn much more than I will ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. You were listening to What a Wonderful World, a few verses of the famous song by Louis Armstrong. And now we move on to today's episode of the podcast, AI Ready Healthcare. It's a wonderful day here in Darmstadt, and it is my pleasure to have Marius Linguraru here, who is a senior member in the Mikhai Society, and we will talk with him about many different aspects of Mikhai Society, how things have developed, where the society is heading, and also his particular research about the infant health. Uh, a brief introduction of Marius is, is a PI in Sheikh Zayed Institute of Pediatric Surgical Innovation in Children's National. And he's also a professor in radiology at uh, George Washington University. And as if that's not enough, uh, Marius has also recently, I don't know if it's so recent anymore, but he has co-founded a startup. So we will hear more about that part of his avatar as well. So it's a complete package we are really looking forward to. So apart from me, Anirban, we have today my co-host Henry here. Hi, I'm Henry. I'm a research assistant in Anirban's laboratory, and I welcome you to today's podcast. Thank you, Anirban and Henry, for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here with you. Unlike in Darmstadt, in Washington, D.C., it's very hot today, and it's really, really hot. <laughs> so I'll speak with some drops of sweat. But again, I appreciate this opportunity to speak with you and to, to share with you some things that I've learned in my career. I will just add to that that Children's National Hospital is based in Washington, D.C., as is George Washington University, where I'm also affiliated with the 
Department of Pediatrics. So as Anirban already mentioned in his introduction, I work very closely to the field of pediatric health. Perfect. So yeah, welcome to today's podcast. Thank you very much for being here. I'm really looking forward to today's session. So according to our tradition in our podcast format, we usually ask the question of becoming. So can you maybe tell us a bit about how you achieved the current position at which you currently are? So let me start with something closer to the beginning, but not very close to the beginning. But I'm a computer scientist. And I, I grew up in, in uh, Romania behind the Iron Curtain many years ago, for those of us who still remember those days. And I was fascinated, like I think every kid of my age uh, and, and at the time, about what computers were bringing to the world. I didn't have a computer. I didn't have access to a computer. So that fascination was purely distant and, and theoretical. But after the fall of the Iron Curtain, My university, University of Sibiu in, in Romania, created a department of computer science. So I was in the second generation of that department, and I very enthusiastically joined the, the world of computer scientists. I should also say that <laughs> as a child, I grew up around the pediatric hospital. So my mom was the head nurse of uh, the pediatric hospital in my hometown of Sibiu, so my mom was at the hospital, working at the hospital. I, I used to, to visit her office often. So I saw children going to the hospital throughout my childhood. In a way, as a young adult, I was trying to get away from that, the hard reality of seeing sick kids. That didn't work very well, as you've already indicated. As a computer scientist, I was very interested in having a human factor in my work. And that became the medical factor. So after graduating from my undergrad degree in computer science, I did a master's degree in what at the time was an incipient age of artificial intelligence in medicine. I was basically learning a lot about the promise of artificial intelligence. Keep in mind that this was in the mid-90s. So artificial intelligence, AI, and, and, and medicine, that became kind of my next focus, and also medical imaging in a general aspect of the field. A few years later, I started working kind of in the academic field and working at the university, and that was requiring a, a PhD, of course, and uh, I was uh, fortunate to get a scholarship to do my PhD at the University of Oxford, so I moved to England and completed my studies there, this time with a clear focus on medical imaging. So this was also the first time I attended MIKAI during my PhD, which is now 20 years ago. The next step in my career was a fellowship that I did uh, the National Institute of Research in Computer Science in France, which we know as uh, INRIA. This is in uh, Sofia Antipolis in the, in the south of France. Then I moved on to do a second fellowship at the Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And what I should maybe mention here is the return to pediatric health <laughs> or the return to what I was running from, right? Uh, applications of medical imaging in pediatric healthcare. In my first week at Harvard, and I remember this very precisely, I attended a surgery at uh, Boston Children's Hospital. And this was a an infant, nine-month-old, a boy, who had double cardiac defect. And during the surgery, the child was taken care of by you know, some of the best specialists that you can find. 
and everything went perfectly well. But what I remember was very, very striking was the fact that this was a room with lots of adults focused on a tiny baby. And I was looking at the x-rays and the images of this child and everything you see there on the screen and it's what I was used to, right? You see the body in an image. But then when I moved my eyes on the operating table, the child was so small. The heart was tiny and the surgical instrument seemed enormous. So I found that very shocking. First of all, of course, I was very impressed by seeing such a young child being on the, in the surgical room with, I think, children should not belong. And then by the inadequate design of the surgical instruments for children. So that's something that has stayed with me ever since. And from Harvard, I I moved to the National Institutes of Health, where I worked again on adult health problems. And from there, when there was an opportunity to move to Children's National Hospital, I jumped on it, remembering very much this story. So a lot of the work that I do now is focused on creating solutions that are appropriate and adequate for using pediatric healthcare. By that, sometimes, you know, it can be simple things like just adapting something, talking about these large instruments, you want to make small instruments and use it in surgery, or by finding personalized solutions that can anticipate health conditions, predict outcomes, and also monitor the evolution of the health of children. That's a wonderful summary. I really enjoyed the personal experience that you shared with us, uh, Marius. That really explains why you will be motivated and driven to make the changes that really needs to happen in the children's health. So I guess one of the questions when you came to the pediatrics you, you already talked about is the big instruments that the children were like operated with. But another thing that you mentioned briefly before is the x-ray and the imaging that was going on. And clearly, most of these imaging, I guess, is at least at that time was probably a lot of radiation exposure to the children, which is also not at all uh, something that a child should go through. So can you tell us a little bit about the this intersection of imaging and surgery for infants? Right. And maybe Anirban, I'll focus more on imaging, which is something I I like to talk about. But yes, to go back to what you mentioned, surgery, right? First of all, I think surgery, the best surgery is no surgery. So a a lot of the projects that, that, that we do in our institute, in our lab, is how can we predict maybe the need of surgery and if possible, eliminate the need of, of surgery for pediatric conditions. And your point was very, very focused on, right, also on on radiation and the use of imaging in this process. And you're absolutely right. Radiation isn't good for any of us, but it's particularly damaging for children and young children. And there are multiple studies that have shown that exposure to radiation at a very early age increases significantly the chance of developing malignant conditions, such cancers, at a later age in life. So the reduction and, if possible, elimination of radiation are big areas in each pediatric health. But there's more than that. Other imaging modalities, such as MRI, for instance, which are non-radiating, and the best of our knowledge are harmless, require sedation in very young children. Because you cannot keep an infant in an MRI machine for 45 minutes under that extreme noise. 
they will move, and that, of course, is not allowed. So sedation for very young children also has neurotoxicity. So then again, there's something that you, you, you want to avoid. And the question is, how, how can we you know, see adequately what's happening inside the bodies of these infants without radiation, such as X-ray or CT or without MRI? And for some conditions, unfortunately, the answer is we can't do it better otherwise. But in many other cases, we can use technologies such as ultrasound. In my career, I I became literally obsessed with the use of ultrasound in healthcare because exactly of the the reasons I I, I gave you before. Now, ultrasound, as members of our research society know, is messy, it's very variable, it's very noisy. It looks uh, hardly interpretable to the untrained eye. It's challenging working with ultrasound. But the benefits of ultrasound are tremendous in, in pediatric healthcare, where ultrasound is used probably much more um, often than in adult care. Again, for reasons like avoiding radiation, avoiding sedation, and the ease of use of this imaging technology uh, at the point of care. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that is actually a very interesting topic. I mean, Moving away from CT imaging or MRI imaging to ultrasound imaging for diagnostics, for example. So this is also something that touches what your uh, startup company is basically also focusing on, right? So yes and no. (laughs) Yes, moving away from radiation. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Using ultrasound, no. But using actually, uh, that's a very good point to make, Henry, using another non-invasive, non-radiating, non-sedating technology, which is photography. What we do at Pediametrics, which is uh, the company that uh, I co-founded, and by the way, Anirban, you're saying it's a new company, we celebrated its third anniversary uh, earlier this year. So yes, it's still young, but it's starting to walk. And we are focused on a general field of using AI and computer vision technique to improve pediatric healthcare and to basically empower pediatricians and parents alike to improve the health of uh, children. And what we do, we, we have developed a smartphone app which allows us to take photos of an infant's head and uh, gives us a determination whether the child has cranial malformations. Now, wh- why are cranial malformations very important? because about a third of newborns have some kind of head deformity, which can be simply positional because they were kept in bed, mostly in one position, or can also be you know, of genetic reasons, can be, for instance, craniosynostosis, which is a severe condition that often requires surgery for correction. But however, the majority of these conditions are positional and they can be corrected very easily if they are discovered early in life. And they can be corrected simply through repositioning. You put a child on their belly while they're up. Um, Many parents are not trained to do that because they have heard of sudden death syndrome where children die in their sleep. And if you keep your child on their back, you reduce the risks of this sudden death. So there is a conundrum there about, you know, how do you best take care of your child and at the same time avoid other kinds of problems that children can have later in life. Because if they have positional Radiocephaly or brachycephaly, they can get later on 
torticollis, they can have muscle stiffness, they can have a symmetry of the head and face, and there are all kinds of developmental complications that come with that. So what we focused on is identifying this condition early, helping pediatricians also identify this condition early because they're not trained to do that. And usually it's a specialist that will make the determination and getting access to a specialist is complicated. It takes time. You lose the opportunity to do that correction early in the child's life. So we create the solutions which are image-based and uh, AI-based. And we want to shorten the period of the detection, identification of the condition, and then also to provide personalized information to parents and pediatricians about how to correct it. But maybe something I would like to, to add to this, and I know it was not in your question, but I think you know students may find this important as well. So how did I get to create this startup? Because a former student of mine who also works in the field of medical imaging had a child with positional plagiocephaly. And she discovered all the challenges that young parents face having a child with this simple and easily correctable condition, they discovered this on their own. So at this point, she approached me because she knew I was working in the field of cranial deformations. And uh, we founded this company, hoping that will help many others uh, who go through the same struggle to find an easy solution for the condition of their child. This is really, really wonderful. Again, what you put forward is the idea that there has to be a human connection and you have to be adding value with your AI product. So I guess this is something that not probably iterated as often as it should be in the Mikai community that just solving, I don't know, segmentation and getting 2% better in mean dice score is definitely one important aspect of the technology getting better, but that might not have a direct impact to the actual patient's life. So I guess I had a general question there as well, because I think this is a common problem that most of the Mikai research doesn't translate to patient care. So when you actually took the baby steps and actually were quite successful. I would say if you have survived three years in a startup, that's a wonderful landmark to have. So what were the major problems that you had to sort out to be this successful? So, you know, as, as you were speaking on here by my head was spinning, I have lots of things <laughs> to add to what you just said. First of all, that I completely agree what you said, but I would also like to add that I've noted over the years a very good trend in the Mikai community and the way the society is heading uh, forward. And that is the stronger connections between researchers such as ourselves and clinicians. And I think that comes with better definition of what the clinical need of the work we're doing, what the clinical need is. And that also facilitates the translation of the methods, the algorithms, the products that we create into the clinical space. And you're absolutely right. There has to be a clinical need for a good product to make it into the clinic. And as was the example that I gave you earlier, the need was very clear and it was identified through personal experience, right? By my former student, who is now the CEO of the company. But that was also balanced through many conversations that we had with potential stakeholder in, in, in this field. That's 
pediatricians, that's general practitioners, that's neurosurgeons, parents of children with and without cranial conditions. And we went through uh, a program that exists in the United States called I-Corps, which was um, supported by the National Science Foundation, in which you have to do a number of interviews with potential clients, and you have to hear the hard way what they think about your idea of putting together a company. And this exercise is extremely useful because, first of all, you hear the answers that you avoided to hear before. And that's very important when you start a company. You have to know what you're going to run against. But secondly, it also allows you to redefine your product or the direction of your company based not on only what you think is the best solution that is going to solve all the problems of the world, but rather about what the others want, what the others would buy and use in their practice or what would help them in taking better care of children. And in all this thing, there are many other factors that they have to play together because we work in the medical field. So we have to think about regulatory processes. In the United States, again, is the uh, Food and Drug Administration, right? It's the, in Europe, the equivalent of that. And there are other organizations, few, but there are a few more around the world, have to understand what that involves as well, because otherwise you won't be able to sell a product in the medical space. For that, we have at our institute a program developed together with the FDA and funded by the FDA, which allows us to work from ideation to the design of a pediatric device through what would be the steps for commercialization, what is involved in the regulatory process. And I think that anyone who has uh, entrepreneurial uh, ideas should understand what this many-step process involves and be ready to go. So, yeah, that's actually quite interesting. It's something, when I think about the potential idea of founding a startup, I think what come to my mind as one of the greatest challenges would actually be the whole regulatory process. That's not trivial, yes. Yeah, definitely not, definitely not. So just a question out of curiosity, how long does it usually take to get a product on the market and through all those regulatory instances? I'll say probably a few years if all goes well, yeah? And more years uh, in the space of pharma where the process um, takes longer. We've seen something extraordinary happening in the last year where the FDA, and not just the FDA, the same was done in Europe, allowed an extraordinary use of the new vaccines, right, under an emergency act. So, When we see this happening, this is really extraordinary. It's because there was a global health crisis where the risk versus benefits, the balance between you know, allowing something to go out into the use, those risks were smaller than the risks of allowing the pandemic to roam through the world. But this is typically not the case, right? So this starts from you have to have a good definition of what your product is and what's going to be used for then you meet with uh, regulatory uh, experts and you discuss the plan for the evaluation of the product. That has to be approved. Again, my example is the FDA. I will speak in my example about what the FDA does. It has to be approved by the FDA. They have to agree that the validation, the testing that you're going to do, it's adequate for the product to be released. They have to review that. They have to approve it. Then you do the evaluation of the protocol and you resubmit the results of that, which has to be, again, 
reviewed and approved. So you see all these steps add to each other and unsurprisingly, uh, the process is uh, slower than I think many of us would like it to be. Because we, we are excited, right? When we create something and we want to see the next day being somewhere on the shelf or in a clinician's office. But uh, we have to learn to be patient. Yeah, definitely, definitely. One thing I was also asking myself was more about not only the regulatory issues and difficulties, but also about the technical difficulties. Because uh, when I think of the problem domain, the problem of scanning an infant with a smartphone camera and performing diagnosis with these images, I think there might be several technical issues, technical problems that might be resolved there, uh, such as things we usually face when we work with data sets of any kind, like bias or generalization problems. So can you maybe tell us something about the problems you experienced, maybe how you solved them? I can again, I, I think I can speak more generally, not just about well, what we do at pediatrics, but this is something that is applicable to anything that is being done in the medical imaging field, right? And a lot with, with AI as well. Maybe you have to start by thinking that you need good data, right? So the acquisition of data has to be adequate. It has to be curated in a way that you can trust that when you analyze that image data, in our case, again, image data, yeah? you trust the results that are going to be revealed through the analysis of, of those images. So the acquisition of data has to be good quality, it has to be stable, and has to be standardized if possible. That's a big quest, right, in medical imaging where different institutions, even in the same institution, you can have data acquired even on the same patient with different machines and using different imaging protocols, various imaging protocols. That introduces variability and algorithms are known to be sensitive to variability. So harmonizing uh, heterogeneous data is important. So using potentially techniques like that or defining a very good acquisition protocol that is constant among institutions. Because your product, you want it to be used at multiple institutions. So it has to work equally well in the hands of different users. Then you have of course, the challenges that come with the technology and the algorithms. We recently spoke at a webinar with other colleagues from the Nikkei Society about you know, some of the challenges that the algorithms have in radiology. And those come from adequate training, adequate testing, reproducibility, interpretability, right? All, all of these big words come strongly into my mind right now. But how do we ensure that we train our methods with sufficient data of sufficient diversity. And that diversity can mean protocols, can be machines, can be human. The operator is part of the diversity. The patient is part of the diversity because we learn more and more about how you know, ethnic and demographic diversity plays a role in outcomes. So your algorithm will have to be smart in that direction as well. Then you have to test it adequately as well, right? And when I'm saying this, of course, you know, under the assumption that the technique is working very well already, we have to test it adequately under different conditions. And I'm always very impressed about all these challenges, right, that are grand challenges that are organized by many of our colleagues in which they put enormous efforts to gather data that are diverse, that are heterogeneous to allow algorithms to be trained in a systematic way on the same data sets and to be tested adequately as well. Because when you test, one of the questions I'm, I'm always asking myself, how would this algorithm work 
on data coming from a different domain that is never been trained on, because that's really showing reproducibility. If it does well on data acquired under different circumstances, we have to do that. And then there is, of course, interpretability and explainable AI is a big theme right, of research. And there are great efforts put in, in the direction because we have to buy the trust of clinicians to use our technology. And we have to show to clinicians that algorithms that we are creating are reasoning in a similar way they are when they see a patient. Otherwise, we may be unreasonable to expect them to trust the black box that does random things without any kind of cohesion with the clinician's mind. Maybe one follow-up question here. I mean, you touched many important aspects, right? So we can't, of course, go into all the aspects because we have a limited amount of time. But the last aspect we say, if I just take that one, which is about the interpretability and the trust of the clinicians on the black box that we are handing over to them. So I have a general feeling that when I look at the interpretability research, at least in the imaging domain, the visual domain, most of it are basically heat map generation. And that's not necessarily give me, like if I am looking at it from an algorithmic standpoint, it doesn't make the algorithm itself more interpretable. It just gives me a false belief that I understand what's going on under the hood. Another question, of course, is the clinicians, do they really need to know what's going on under the hood, under the black box? Because they are actually using many systems already, which are giving them numbers on which they are making decisions without caring about. So can you tell us a little bit about this dichotomy in the clinical sense? I'd be happy to comment on that. I'm not sure I'll have (laughs) an absolute answer on what what that means. But We discussed recently in this series of uh, webinars and panels that we do between the Mikai Society and the RSNA, the Radiological Society of North America, exactly in the direction of bridging this gap between the two societies. I mean, the the two societies have worked closely on a number of of levels. We're trying to formalize this a little bit more because it's really a, a relation that is mutually beneficial to researchers in the imaging field and clinicians and researchers, clinician scientists in, in, in radiology. And one comment that I made there, and, and, and I, I repeat today as well, is that maybe if a black box works very well, consistently, repeatedly, and accurately in interpreting image data, maybe that's sufficient. But that has to be done at the right pace and rhythm, because there is a level of trust that has to be gained with that. And that comes again with testing and validation. And importantly, I think by keeping the clinician in the loop, in the development of those methods and the evaluation of those methods. So again, working with a clinician here and getting the machine and the clinician to learn how to work with with each other, I think you can gain a level of, of trust like that. But then also, with, with the risk of repeating, you know, one of the comments that I was making there, there are a lot of social, psychological, economic factors that play a role in this as well. And the example I was giving was of a study that uh, was published a few years ago, looking at a survey of AI researchers who are predicting how machines will replace humans in the future. 
And everybody was agreeing and saying, yeah, you know, writing, reading, driving cars and trucks and trains, everything is going to be done by machines very well in, in a few years. When it was coming to predicting when a machine could replace a surgeon, everybody was saying, oh, that's further in the future, further in the future. I don't remember now exactly how many years they put into that, but it was 20, 40. It was in the foreseeable, but long, long, long future. But then researchers in Asia were a lot more optimistic than those in North America. So they thought all of this would happen faster. So all of these things, when, when, when you put them together and you're trying to come up with an answer that says, oh, will the clinician trust a black box? I think you have to work on a use case by use case and define the parameters of the use case, right, together with the clinician, and then hopefully speed up the trust learning process from there. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I think the interpretation is so much more nuanced than the interpretation of the algorithmic decision itself. And it's basically a crosstalk between many stakeholders, as you said, the patients, the doctors, the technologists, maybe the healthcare uh, economy itself. And that like that that has that is much more nuanced, of course. If I may add something to that, Anirban, often when we designed algorithms for radiology, we put the algorithm against the radiologist, right? We try to reproduce what, what the radiologist does. And to link back to what I was saying about ultrasound, the quantification of ultrasound images is very complex. So the radiological interpretation of ultrasound sometimes is done at a different level. It would be done on CT or MRI. You don't measure the same way anatomy and function. So do we want our benchmark to be how the radiologist has been taught to read the ultrasound and they have their metrics, which they do very well, but sometimes these metrics do not correlate with outcomes. So what I often prefer to do in such application is to train the imaging algorithm against an outcome when that outcome is not image-based, right? But we know that in the long term, a patient will have a certain result that would be a much stronger benchmark than the original radiological interpretation of, of an image, particularly when that image is noisy, variable, and difficult to read. Of course. I, I mean, I can imagine the fact that even when a radiologist is trying to interpret, it's not necessarily that he or she is only looking at the image data itself for the interpretation. They have many other clinical parameters and information that's lying there. But talking about the radiology and heterogeneity of the data that we started talking about, I will now like to come to this challenge that you organized. COVID-19 saw a significantly big number of imaging AI development, and many of these were done in such biased data sets and situations that people came up writing papers and really talking about community-wide overfitting on totally wrong data sets, totally wrong problems that created so much potential, but really lost chance of AI being truly helpful thing in the radiology setting. And then you organize this COVID-19 CT segmentation challenge data set. So can you tell us a little bit about your perspective going into it? That's a very good question, but I, I think I was probably thinking what every one of us was thinking. We're going through a global health crisis and there are so many unknowns about it and we need to find solutions very fast. And 
putting resources together for a challenge or for developing methods that can help this pandemic that at the time was roaring and moving every day in a different direction was not easy. Fortunately, I mean, I had the, the right partnership to do this together, and that was working with my colleagues from the National Institutes of Health, who had gathered a large data set. This was, this was the first and the largest data set of, of cities of patients with COVID-19, collected from multiple continents and with patients at all stages of severity, and also with my colleagues from NVIDIA, who have you know the technological experience of putting together a challenge like this and the resources that can help researchers in our field uh, move on fast. By that, I mean open source codes and computational platforms. And then I had my clinical colleague, also at Children's National, who put a tremendous effort into carefully annotating all the data and, and interpreting some of the results. So when we did this, we opened the challenge for about a month for people to register and to run their algorithms. And we had during this period over 1,000 people who signed up. And that also showed, I think, that we as a research society really care about what's happening around us. COVID-19 was something that was, of course, eye-opening and shocking for the entire world. And researchers in the Nikkei field wanted to bring their uh, contributions to, to solving this. But I would also say that if there was, you know, speaking earlier about benchmarks for training, for this challenge, our benchmark were the radiologists. And that was a shortcoming when we gathered the data and provided these resources to the public. And we are aware of it from the beginning. But we did not have outcomes on these patients. We did not know what happened to them and where they ended up being. If, you know, they healed well, if they had long COVID. Long COVID was not much of a thing at the time we were doing this challenge. So while I think we created an environment that allowed the rapid creation and evaluation of resources for the quantification of the COVID-19-related lesions in the lung, it is very important to, to look at other factors that are predicted or correlate with these quantifiable measures that are seen in images. So what were your take-homes from this whole project? I mean, it sounds like a tremendous effort and something where, of course, things may go wrong and other things may go in a very right direction. So a similar situation should ever occur, which I hope doesn't, which I definitely hope doesn't. But what would you do differently or what would you do similarly? Um. That's a great question, Henry, and I hope, and I'm sure somebody asked this 100 years ago when the influenza pandemic was <laughs> roaring through, through the world. And actually, if we look at some of the documents, the medical documents that were published hundreds of years ago to other times of pandemics that happened at the time in Europe, these questions were always asked. What may be disappointing is that we're asking ourselves the same question over and over and probably have better answers, but we are not necessarily very well prepared for a pandemic that could have happened any day of any year. What I know that is being done now, and I think there are international programs focused on, on this, and I know in, in the US, there are a number of programs for pand pandemic prevention. And part of that, there is the creation of infrastructures that allow faster dissemination of data. So, Access to data, sharing of data, that was a part of the big problem 
proprietary data or data that are not easily transferable outside of in fast solutions, right, in, in a time of, for instance, a pandemic. So these pandemic prevention centers are, are now uh, uh, being uh, created. Another thing that we did, another project, and I hope you'll see, I mean, you, you can find the publication now in the open uh, domain, also officially published soon, is, uh, is a project that we did uh, and was run by NVIDIA and uh, hospitals uh, of the Harvard Medical School, the Massachusetts Brigham Hospitals, using a federated learning paradigm to allow creating a predictive model of the need of oxygenation based on a chest X-ray and patient parameters, such as lab tests and vitals, with data that we collected from 20 centers with, if I remember correctly, I think there were 16,000 patients. And that that would not have been possible if we would have to do data transfer between institutions and the paperwork uh, for it. So using a a paradigm that that allows uh, the exchange of information in a safe way that protects uh, uh, patient identity and any kind of other parameters. All right. Thank you very much for your answer. So looking at the timeline, I would say that we should close the session with one last final question, especially regarding your role in Mikai Society and your work in um, career development and mentoring. So it's some sort of a personal question from my side because I'm currently starting as a PhD student. So uh, yeah, what would you recommend to any graduate student or young PhD student in the domain of computer science with a medical background? Well, let me start answering from my perspective, (laughs) from my experience. I've been very fortunate to have great mentors during my studies, during my career. So I had role models from whom I learned a lot and who provided me the support that I needed to trust in myself, to get get out of the holes (laughs) that life provides to each one of us. And allow me to grow the perspective, my, my perspective and my uh, trust in the future. And what I think, and I hope most of us have access to, to such great mentors, some of us may not. And with the Mikai Society, we have put together the, a career development program, which some of you may have noticed in its early days uh, as the mentorship program that uh, happened for the first time at Mikai 2018, and then again last year and this year at Mikai 2021, we're going to have the third edition of the mentorship program. And this we've organized on a conference basis with people who are participating in the conference and getting uh, pairs of mentors and mentees to work together. And this is done for the benefit of our younger members of the society, of our early career members of the society, with the aim of increasing access to information, to resources, to um, data about how to grow your career, what's the next step you should do, how to get funded, how to start your company, how to make a career change if that's necessary. So this is kind of a mentorship outside of the mentorship that is provided to everyone during their PhD programs or postdoctoral fellowships or in the institutions where where they work. Also, we want to provide better opportunities to diverse members of the society who may have access to uh, more limited resources. 
However, watch this, this space for, for the future because what we would like to do is to grow this program work society-wide and not to be a conference-limited uh, uh, opportunity, but to be open to everyone who needs uh, access to a good mentor any time of the year in the future. So we're setting up now the, the infrastructure and there's a lot of work to be done uh, behind the scenes, but this is something that I'm very happy to share with you today and that I think will uh, roll out in the near future. As for now, Nikai 2021 will uh, still have, will have a call for mentees that uh, will be out this summer. So uh, that, that will be sent to, to the distribution lists of the Nikai Society. And uh, I look forward to see uh, many names on that application form. That's really wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this work, which I guess probably involves a lot more hard work, but a lot less recognition, if we can put it that way, because there won't be any direct scientific recognition in terms of the next uh, papers and etc. But I guess the entire society will benefit a lot from your hard work and effort, Maurice. So thanks so much for doing the actual hard work. Also on that note, thank you so much for your time. It's really wonderful talking to you. And thank you very much, Anirban and, and, and Henry, for this great conversation and the opportunity to share some of the things that, that are happening in my life. And uh, also, thank you for uh, putting this initiative together. Uh, I look forward to seeing more episodes <laughs> in the future. Absolutely. On that note, have a nice, wonderful week ahead and really looking forward to how Mikai Society grows with all together. Thank you so much. <laughs>